Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore these ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Now, you can check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you'll find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact, essentially everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. Today on the show, I welcome the spoken word performer and poet InQ. InQ is a national poetry slam champion, multi-platinum songwriter, and jaw-dropping performer. I've seen him wax poetic on stage dozens of times and always feel a deep connection. InQ alchemizes spiritual lessons with hip-hop grit in terms of phrase that incite tears, laughter, and an occasional epiphany. He has the unique quality to make everyone in the room feel the same. He's got just some amazing YouTube videos. Check out The Only Reason We're Alive on his website, InQ. Com. Now, this month, InQ is releasing his first book, Inquire Within, a comprehensive collection of his poetry. I've been tucking myself in with it every night. You can pick it up online or support a local bookstore. InQ shares some of his poetry on the show today. This episode is amongst my very favorite of all time. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Yes, in queue, and we've improvised. Um, we've looked within. And uh, I'd love for you to tell us how you came to this place, how you discovered poetry as your means of expression. So uh, I was born and raised in Santa Monica, California. Um, and I was raised by my mom, who was a school teacher, and my father was not around. And when I was uh, 13 years old, I fell in love with hip hop. Mm. And I just loved the expression of it, you know, and immediately was drawn um, to everything that they were talking about, but the emotion behind it as well. So I started freestyling by myself and with my friends. And I would say that that was my first form of meditation. Hmm. because when you're freestyling, you can't think about anything else but the next word. And so it drops you into the moment. Yeah. And uh, so that was an unconscious practice that I was doing. And it was also an outlet for me for all of the unresolved thoughts and emotions that I had no other avenue to get out of my system. And, uh, and so I kept doing it, you know, and I just absolutely loved writing and I loved sharing and I was in battles and all sorts of stuff like that and then when I was 19 years old I wound up at an open mic for poets in Los Angeles called the Poetry Lounge mm -hmm. and it turned out to be the biggest open mic for poets in the country it was only rivaled in a positive way by the New Yorican in New York so we would get 250 to 350 people every single week who would show up at the Greenway Court Theater 
and watch people who signed up on a list get up and share their words. And I immediately fell in love and I felt at home because it was the first time I saw people being celebrated for vulnerability. Hmm. So they would get on stage and they would spit a poem and if it was true and it was real, the audience would snap and clap and cheer and it was like alchemy in real time. And that group of people became a community and that community became a family. We were all, you know, on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam together. We won the National Poetry Slam Championships together. And one day I woke up and I realized I was more of a poet than an MC. And that was the beginning of the journey. Wow. So you really, you had a venue and a supportive community to essentially cut your teeth. Yeah. 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 Which was necessary, by the way, because, you know, as I said, my mom's a school teacher. I very much respect the art of teaching. But no one can teach you what your voice is as an artist. Your voice comes from your experience. They could teach you techniques, and techniques are extremely valuable as you explore your art, but you'll only know your voice from doing it. And so this was the environment that allowed me the space to do it and to watch other people that were doing it. So, you know, they were friend tours. Yeah. You know, they were my friends and my mentors. And did you find your unique fingerprint voice or or were you sponging in sort of the cultural voices of the time i mean did you have influences or was or were you, was your own experience your own your biggest influence i would say both you know it's like what's more important nature or nurture right you know i mean it's the same conversation really um for me uh, I always used my thoughts and my emotions and my experiences. Even now, I mean, how I write is I pay attention to when something inspires me or moves me or annoys me. And I make time and space to explore that through a poem. And if I create that time and space, the rest of the poem will almost write itself. But I was and still am influenced by my life, by, you know, the things that I go and choose to do by the artists that I surround myself with and the artists that I look up to that I have never met. And it doesn't matter what genre they're in. Were there specific MCs that were like, okay, wow, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, but I never attempted to be like them. Right. I just used the inspiration that I saw in them uh, as the spark to go back to my writing and to get better. But, you know, for poetry specifically, I don't freestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very, very careful and very, very conscious about every word and every sentence and uh, where the poem is going. You know, because I feel like I'm the vehicle and the obstacle to my art, you know, um, in the creation of it and in the sharing of it. You know, so there'll be times when I write something that I think is really, really dope, but it's more about my ego. <laughs> yeah. It's not actually what the poem wants to say. And so I have to remove myself to be a steward of the thing that's coming through me. Um, and so. And, yeah. and is there a relationship because you're such, um, I've seen you perform dozens of times and you're such a present and connected performer. Um, is there a relationship that you have with the audience 
where you can sense a reaction. You can sense a connection to something that you say, a turn of phrase or an idea that you utter that you're like, that's, I nailed it with that. And then you bring that back into your, into your lab. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I guess, is there an iterative approach to your writing or is it kind of like, I'm just in my lab, I'm kind of da 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 and then I'm just out there? Well, I mean, when you're performing pieces for, you know, at least the first few times, it's an experiment because you really don't know how people are going to respond to it. Um, but when I'm creating it, if I just slow down and just make sure that I want to follow the next sentence, um, it's an intuitive guide towards making something that feels right and feels true. And what my experience has been is if it feels right and feels true to me, it will feel right and true to many other people. Now, not everybody. And that's a whole nother thing because, you know, I mean, I could very easily focus on the people that I perceive that don't like it or don't get it. But once again, that's my ego. And so, you know, it's presumptuous for me to need everyone in the audience to relate to everything that I'm saying. And if I focus my energy there, I actually am not focusing my energy on the people that are being moved by it. So I actually learned that a while back is I, I don't focus on the things that aren't working when I'm performing. I focus on the things that are. And then the last thing I would say is that, yeah, I definitely take external things that are happening and I, uh, I come back to them later as I'm preparing whatever my next set is. But a lot of it is internal. A lot of it is what my experience is on stage. Yeah. You know, someone told me once, I don't remember who it was, that before you move other people, you have to move yourself. Yeah. And that is a good compass. It's a good gauge. Because mm -hmm. if you're hiking through the woods and you're composing and you start to cry, you're like, it's probably going to work. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. probably going to mean something for someone else, that someone else will be able to see that story in this one. For sure. You know, I don't strategize my inspiration. <laughs> I think strategizing inspiration is one step away from manipulation. Mm. And if you're manipulating the audience, you're inherently manipulating yourself first. Ooh. So I am the first person in my audience. You know, I'm the person that I'm speaking to. That's beautiful. How old are you? 41. 41. So for yeah. 41 years, the only way for the rest of humanity to enjoy your work was either on the stage or in some of your really just absolutely transcendent, fantastic YouTube videos, nice. um, which I've watched a lot. Um, but now you, you've codified that mm -hmm. work in a book. Um, and uh, I'll tell you, like, I have a little ritual at home because I'm a, I've generally been an insomniac. I'm actually way better now. Me um, too. Okay. Many years. Um, and my wife, God bless her, um, been with her for 32 years, um, mm. has had to put up with that. And generally, every night, um, reads to me. Mm. 
That's beautiful. Often from The New Yorker, um, which has these interminable articles. And certainly by like page three, I'm asleep. So she can read the same article for like a month. Mm. And then she has to go back the next night to mm. get for my brain to catch back up. But uh, last week when I got a copy of your book, you know, we kind of like assumed our positions in the bed. She rumples out the old New Yorker. She's ready to go. I'm like, no, honey, it's my turn mm. to read to you. Wow. And um, I'd read a couple of the poems in the book that I felt were just really moving. And um, and so I, I, I read her a poem. Mm -hmm. I read her the Father Time poem because mm. I, uh, in a kind of very different way, just had a very emotional a lot of emotional resonance with that poem. Mm. Do you know and, why? What what was brought up for you when you when you heard it? <clears throat> well, I sort of had the opposite experience in in some ways, and I don't want to read too much into the verite of it. Mm. Um, but I grew up with my dad, right? Um, and uh, my dad and I had a very close, have a very close relationship. In retrospect, I I kind of sort of see it as somewhat codependent at, at some times. Um, but, uh, because I had that relationship with my dad and we leaned so heavily on each other, um, I really, when I read your poem, I sort of, I had a lot of gratitude for my, for my dad. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Thank you for saying that to me. Yeah. Um, it means a lot. And, uh, sorry. Oh, no, please, man. It's all good. Uh, so. It's all good. Makes me feel closer to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so I was reading that to Skyler, and I got kind of emotional as I'm getting emotional right now, and, uh, <laughs> and it was classic. And so, actually, I'd read her a couple other poems first, and then I read her that one mm. because I kind of felt like I had to warm up mm. to that one because right. she she knows the deal with me and my dad. Um, and by the end, I was sort of choking up and crying, mm. and then. Like, you know, I turned to her and I was like, what do you think? And she was. <laughs> 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 she was dead asleep. And so there I was having this experience that I felt was like very connected with her. But it was actually just my own experience, which was Well, great. I think both of those things are the best compliment I could receive. <laughs> you know, that you got emotional and she fell asleep. Yeah. Right. That's great. Yeah, That's so really the purpose so of all of my poetry. It's highly utilitarian yes. in that sense. Yes. Um, but I wonder um, if you wouldn't mind sharing that poem with us. And I, I'd love to hear a few from, uh, from the new book that I know is coming out at the end of March. Yeah. And by the time this uh, podcast drops, you know, people will be able to get it right away. So, uh, this piece is called father time. I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I didn't meet my dad until I was 15. I'd seen his photograph, but his image was sickening. A coward with a dick, but no balls to back it up. See, when he left me as a kid, I had cause for acting up. The funny thing about hate is the person you hate doesn't feel that hate. You feel that hate, but wait, 
The weight can be too much for a person to take. And personally, I was hurt, so I just locked it away. I was angry all the time. And I didn't know why. I couldn't handle my own rage, so I would hide it inside. Pretending everything was fine became a daily pastime. Time passed, and I started to believe in my lies. I took it out on my mom because she raised me alone. The rage I couldn't own had left me totally numb. It was like landmines in my mind that I didn't understand. So when the boy inside cried, the young man outside yelled. I think I learned about my masculinity from TV. The people weren't real, so I knew they couldn't leave me. I would sit there for hours right in front of the tube. The images that I saw were my depiction of truth. It was manhood in a box, and I bought into it. The censorship of anything inside of me that's sensitive, the sentence is a lifetime of tears suppressed in a stone face, an overblown ego they've distracted through a paper chase. Back when I was nine, I imagined in my mind that my father was a spy working for the FBI, and that's why he couldn't stop by, write, or drop a line. He was off saving our lives from the bad guys, but that was just a lie that I used to get by so that you wouldn't see the tears welling up in my eyes when you're rejected by the person that you're created by. You secretly feel like you don't have a right to your life. I thought if I confronted him, then it would make it all right. But since I couldn't forgive him, it just recycled my spite. I remember meeting him for the first time. Every time a person passed by, I would ask, Mom, is that him? I look a little like him, right? No? Oh. What about that guy? And that was what it was like to meet the man that gave me my life. To shake his hand and look into his eyes. We talked till he apologized, then said our goodbyes. I walked away on my own, then I began to cry. Now, for years after that, I acted like it was all resolved. I told him what I thought, so I figured problem solved. But it just re-evolved. My insecurities were eating at my mental health. I took it out on the world because I hated myself. That's when I finally decided I needed some help. I opened up. I started writing and sharing about my past. I got honest with myself and I started chipping at my mask. I looked into the mirror and confronted what I saw. Accepting the reflection by embracing every flaw, then directing the connection into breaking down the walls by reflecting the perfection of the God inside us all. I stopped focusing on everything that I had been hateful for, and I started focusing on everything I could be grateful for. And personally, there is a lot I can be thankful for. If pain is dragging you down, just cut the ankle cord. That's when the weight lifted and I really started living. That's when my hate shifted and I really started giving. It's when my fate twisted. It was like an ego exorcism. 
your mind state can be the most powerful of prisons. My father never played catch with me or gave advice. But if nothing else, that man gave me my life. And that's enough for me. If that is all he can ever give. Because I'm appreciative for every day I get to live. And even though I don't need my dad to validate me, I thought that I should write this poem to thank him for creating me. Because every moment that we are alive is like a gift. And if that's not enough to forgive, then what is? I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I pick the phone up. The dial tone begins to sing. I punch his number into it and it begins to ring. 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 Hello, Mike. Hey, man, it's, uh, it's Adam. Your son. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, man. Yeah. Everyone listening has gone through some sort of experience in their life that would make us cry, you know? Yeah. It's so, the so, human experience. Yes. Even if the circumstances are different. You know, the circumstances really don't matter. It's the mirror of what we are all going through while yeah. we're here, which is the ups and the downs, you know? And uh, in, ex in experiencing that resentment, that hatred, that anger, yeah. which was, th that provided a sort of twisted sort of comfort for me. Mm. Mm. And the point that you make here, which is, you know, you may feel that resentment. You may be holding this ember. Mm -hmm looking around and waiting to throw it at someone. Mm -hmm. But like who's getting burned right. in that time? Yeah, well said. And that notion is very connected to something that you talk about later in the poem, mm -hmm. forgiveness, mm -hmm. which in some ways, in many ways, it's a gift that you can give someone else. But in a lot of ways, it's a gift that you give yourself or you drop that, that ember. Right. Mm. It doesn't make someone unaccountable for their actions. Mm. And it doesn't mean you have to have them in your life anymore. Right. You give everyone the room to change, but not necessarily with me. Sometimes too much happens, mm -hmm. you know, but you don't want to walk around with that hate. Yeah. I think the other thing in the poem that, um, that really speaks to me is the, you're sort of, the way that you received your notions of what archetypal masculinity should be yeah, kind of through the media, you know, through watching TV. Um, and I wonder, you know, how did you become sort of aware of that programming? And we talked a little bit about it before the podcast of like how we kind of all carry this imprint. Mm-hmm. 
that then tells us what we're supposed to be. Like, yeah. I've got to be this image of success, driving a fancy car, living, or whatever it is. Totally. And was there a moment for you where you woke up and be like, no? I would say that part of the reason that I became observant about my life and my environment and other people, and part of the reason that I'm curious, which is where NQ comes from, it's in question, but originally it was inquiry. I was always asking people things about, you know, not only the surface layer, but the deeper thing. Um, and that came from me feeling like I didn't belong, you know? So what a gift my father gave me. You know, I would not be who I am without that experience. Yeah. I would be someone else, and I'm not saying I wouldn't have a different life, you know, with different lessons and, and different, you know, great things that I had created, but I wouldn't have this life. You know, I, I, in my household, in my school, you know, in my neighborhood, it was always like, who am I supposed to be? And I didn't trust who I was, you know, to, to emerge. Um, and I would say that the outlet of rhymes and poetry was the first time I started to connect to that true voice. And I would say in many ways, that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book and that I called it Inquire Within because I had to inquire within myself to create it. People have to inquire within the book and look through the pages and then they have to inquire within themselves. And to anybody that's listening to this, you know, if you have something that's going on right now that you can't figure out, find some time to just be by yourself, mm -hmm. to sit in nature and to allow all of the other stimulus of this modern life that we're living to kind of like drop away so that you can hear your own internal voice because that is the thing to the brand of wanderlust that's going to give you your true north mm -hmm. your passion your purpose your enthusiasm and you know if, if you follow the path the path will lead the way so i hope that this book inquire within is basically a window into people hearing their own true voice yeah it certainly will be um just from my own experience <coughs> of reading it um, there was another moment in the book that struck me, um, also kind of related to a personal story. Um, I have three daughters, mm. um, and my youngest one, Micah, is she's still diminutive in size. She's a little nugget, like you know, she's ten, but I can still kind of own her, you know, a little bit, like. You know, the other one's like, don't hug me so much, Dad. And I'm, I'm a hugger and so on. But the little ones, she's cool, so I'll take her. And, you know, sometimes I'll read to her a lot in bed. It sounds like I, my whole life happens in bed. But it's, um, and, and reading, that's it. But that's actually, it is a big part of my life right now. Um, and uh, it was her birthday and close to Christmas. And so there's kind of a time where I'm fulfilling a lot of wishes and things mm -hmm. like that for her. And, uh, you know, she has a modicum of gratitude for that um, at 10. I mean, how much can you have? So she asks me, Dad, like, what's your wish? You know, mm. do you have any wishes? And I was, like, pretty stumped. Mm. I was like, oh, am I, you know, Micah, my life is good, you know? Like, mm. I want you guys to be happy. She's like, no, come on, Dad. You must have some kind of wish. And... um I had to think about it for a minute. And uh, this might seem like 
not cruel, but an odd thing to say to a 10-year-old. But it just sort of spontaneously came into my head. And I said, I wish that your mom and I will die on the same day. Mm. And she was like, that's weird, Dad. Why? And I was like, because I don't want either of us to grieve the other's absence. Mm. And uh, like on some level, like she got it, you know, it was cool, you know, just to see. But I, um, when I read 85, you know, that triggered that memory a little bit or that thought yeah. of like, uh, well, I won't color it anymore, but if, if you wouldn't mind sharing that poem. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that story, man. You know, that, that's something I can, I can relate to in my own way. I mean, I'm only two years in with my girlfriend, <laughs> not 32. So yeah. we, we have a ways to go, but, but I feel that, you know, eternal love. And, uh, when I wrote this, I didn't have it in my life. It was, you know, a manifestation at that point. And I actually wrote this piece 85 because um, I used to live in this little back house. And I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but the woman that owned the main house, her mom moved in at a certain point. Her name was Dolores. Hmm. And uh, she was in her 80s. And we shared a kitchen together. So I would go in, I'd make coffee, and we would talk about life and love and happiness. And at the time, I would complain about my ex-girlfriends or whatever was going on, you know. Yeah. Oftentimes, you know, it's not only kids that we don't respect their wisdom, it's the elderly because they remind us of our own mortality. So people just kind of like avoid going there when they have so much to teach us. Yeah. You know? I, I just read Atul Gawande's book, mm -hmm. um, and that's changed so much because like modern allopathic Western medicine can kind of pe keep people limping along forever in life. And, you know, there are a lot of old people now. And we, because there are so many, we kind of almost just think of them as a burden in some ways sometimes. But in the olden days, you know, to live to 85 was a rarity. Yeah. And if you did, that means you held a certain kind of eternal ancient wisdom mm -hmm. and and younger people would look to that to the, the elderly for for wisdom for yeah. guidance but that's not really it's not really true. the case anymore you yeah. know um but i looked to her for that and i also liked her very much i mean i ended up loving her but i just liked her mm -hmm. i thought she was awesome she had like a great personality and like we kind of talk shit to each other and you know, it was just yeah. playful. Sweet. And uh, so anyway, so one night I wake up, it's like whatever, she's been there for six months or a year. I don't really remember, but I had uh, this big window and it was three in the morning. And uh, I basically like, look through my blinds and I see the ambulance lights and she's getting taken away on a stretcher hmm. and she's still alive, you know, come to find out, but she's having major health complications. So I went and I visited her in the hospital and she had uh, tubes in and out of her system and she had a high fever. She didn't recognize me. Um, her granddaughter was there for part of it and, uh, and the doctors, I guess, were not giving a great diagnosis. 
And I basically just said my goodbyes to her because I felt like this was probably her time and I didn't want her to suffer anymore. But of course, she ends up getting better and they move her to her retirement community and she's in the retirement community for about a month before I went and visited her. And I see her, we end up walking out to this little garden in the back and we're sitting there and she's in a good mood. And I was like, Dolores, why are you in such a good mood? She leans in and she goes, I met a guy. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean you met a guy? And she said, I met a guy. There's a guy that I met when I moved in and we liked each other, so we've been dating. And I just thought that was so beautiful because here I thought that her life was over and not only did she get better, but she got excited about something again. Mm. Like she was able to be surprised by life. And you know, for anyone who's listening to this, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're not willing to be surprised by life or excited by life, you're not really living. And you know, anything can be around the next corner, a miracle, you know, or love. So I ended up writing this piece. Mm. 85. I want to fall in love at 85, go on shuffleboard dates, and dance to hip-hop from 95. We would also listen to the song Staying Alive, but only for the message. Otherwise, we'd keep away from disco. It's depressing. We'd rock matching tracksuits and rope gold chains. We'd look like Run DMC, but in their old age. We take aerobics classes and wear bifocal glasses and eat at IHOP and hold hands at Sunday masses. And when it comes to the bedroom, well, nothing much would happen in the bedroom because we're 85. But we would still be down to take a walk or take a drive or sit and talk and have a drink, watch the passersby, ask each other why and how and who and where and when. And then we'd laugh and cry again about the people we had been. And I would touch her withered skin and comment on how thin it is to keep in something infinite. And she would smile, sweet and blush, then tell me that I think too much. She's right, I think too much. It's always been a problem. But then again, that's how I made my green like the goblin. When I was in my 20s, I was eating top ramen, counting up my pennies, saving up to go food shopping. But now I'm 85, and somehow I feel more alive. I turn my hearing aid up and bump Jurassic 5. I read the sports page while she peruses classifieds. We like antique stores, garage sales, and barter buys. And when it comes to the bedroom, well, hopefully, every once in a while, she lets me knock her boots into the floral patterns of our bedpost then hold her head close like death isn't chasing us, planning on erasing us and replacing us with better versions of us, reshaping us, remaking us, then recreating us with new identities so we can make new memories. Hush, little baby, learn to walk and talk and think and lie and feel and fight and love and die and never get the answers why. She dips a joint of grass and wheatgrass and we get high. Her hair is silver as the moon in the Miami sky. We still pop pills, but it's not the Molly anymore. Whenever we can't sleep, we listen to the ocean floor. 
She got a sound of the CCD for me from the Brookstone store. And ever since, I've been snoring like a... Like a really good metaphor for snoring. Sorry, I go blank sometimes. What? I'm 85. I'm not complaining. I'm just happy that I'm still alive. And happy that I have my better half by my side. Super fly. She doesn't look a day over 75. When I first saw her, I was totally in awe. She was classical. So I was like, yo, yo, ma. And that was all it took. A single look and I was shook. I fell for her like some loose shingles from our Spanish roof. And I'm a lover till she loses every last root and has to glue dentures to her gums to chew solid food. Ooh, now that's real love, dude. That's some push comes to shove love. Not when it's convenient, love. Hospital bed, love. Feed her ice chips, love. Never leave the room, love. Sleeping in the chair, love. Pray to up above, love. Have to pull the plug, love. Miss her in my bones, love. Everything about her, love. Die within a month, love. Can't live without her love. Love, the only reason that we are alive. And none of us should have to wait until we're 85. So the book's called Inquire Within. Um, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but you have a practice. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me like a little bit about kind of what your personal practice is and maybe you can connect it to some of your work. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely, you know, have been meditating for you know, over four years, and actually Emily Fletcher, who's an amazing teacher uh, and had her book release here at Wanderlust, um, taught me originally. And um, it was uh, during a very kind of tumultuous period of my life where I think I needed some sort of an anchor. And uh, for me, that's been an incredible practice. It's been a game changer. Uh, I describe meditation as kind of like a gym for letting go. And, you know, your whole entire life is about letting go Hmm. i mean you everything that you create everyone that you know your identity your body in the end of it you know you have to let go of all of it and the only thing really left is how you impact the people that you love um and the world at large so uh i think that this is uh, a way to practice that you know so that you know when you're meditating you're just basically like over and over again, letting go of your thoughts and your emotions and returning to the moment. And for me, that's been really helpful because I've built up my muscles that way so that when I'm in a situation and I get triggered, I don't always bring some unresolved shit from the past into a new moment. And then I'm dealing with a projection, not dealing with reality. 
yeah, for me, it's been the sort of cultivation of the ability to be the witness of the situation mm -hmm. where I was locked in a locker when I was in seventh grade, right. like a little school locker. Mm -hmm. It felt like I was in there for hours. I'd probably in there for like two minutes, right. three minutes, but it was it's traumatic, insane, yeah. traumatic. And I <clears throat> sort of brought forth this claustrophobia into like my adult life. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> um, and it's kind of one of my Achilles heels, you know, and now this has happened recently. I was in Vancouver and I got into the elevator. I was the only one in the elevator, but there was a, I was a kind of on the top floor and there was a conference mm -hmm. and it just every floor, oh, it God. would stop. Right. And all of a sudden, like I was in the very, very corner of this mm. elevator, overstuffed mm, mm. with people. It was a Lululemon conference, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, he didn't mind the company. Yeah, the company was lovely, but that actually, but my own psychoses and phobias somehow transcended all of the lycra-clad, lovely right. women that were in the elevator. And, um, and I started feeling that welling up of fear. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, no, no, wait a minute. Just watch the fear. You aren't the fear. You're feeling the fear, but you aren't it. The emotion, you are the home, you're the house. This emotion is not invited, but it's here and it will leave. And breathe and be here and just be okay. Mm. You know, don't take that traumatic event of the past of being locked in that locker and project that into the future like you are going to freak out the way that you freaked out then mm. and i think you did the process of uh integration mm. which is really what people should be doing like i'm a definitely i believe in the law of attraction you know as we talked about earlier everything is just vibrating energy so of course if you change your frequency you will change what you're attracted to and what you're attracting. Mm -hmm. And this is all just, you know, a sea of consciousness basically that we're swimming in. Um, but I'm not a proponent of everything's all right all the time. Yeah. I feel great all the time. Everything's great. And then you feel something that's, you know, you perceive as negative, you know, or sadness, anger, jealousy, and you just suppress it you know, stuff it down, pretend that it's not there, argue yourself out of it. You know, all of those things just basically, you know, it finds another way out, you know, whether it's through traffic or whether it becomes a disease or anything like that. So I think what you have to do is what you did. And that's what I'm trying to remind myself of on a daily basis. When I have those thoughts and emotions, you know, to own them and to accept them and to love them, Yeah. you know, because at a certain point, they were part of a survival mechanism. That's it. And, and when you love them and you can integrate them and you decide to create from them rather than destroy from them, then you're actually living alchemy. Yes. Yeah. I absolutely, totally, 100% agree with you. And I'll just give you one last little story about my youth and, and, and some of the reaction that I had to it and then some of the lessons that I more recently learned, which is... I was a super chubby kid. I was moving around to country after country, not knowing the language with my parents at that juncture um, before my, they split up. And, um, and my whole life was geared around fitting in. Mm -hmm. And so I was always assimilating. I was always changing. I had no problem changing who I authentically was in order to 
fit in. Um, and, you know, I essentially brought that forward into my adult life um, and uh, just based my identity very much through the eyes of other people and constantly seeking approval. Mm -hmm. um, and as I became aware of that more and more, I started to see that as a defect. And then I, and then I spoke to this guy, Gabor Mate, a brilliant guy. And he's like, you know, Jeff, you can't see that as a defect. You were using that at the time as a survival technique and play that forward. How did that work out? How did that work out for you? Right. And he's like, what have you done with your life? And I'm like, well, I've created a lot of, community and he's like yeah right and he's like because you appreciated from a very young age the importance of connection and belonging now you saw it as because you were a child as fitting in and there's a difference between fitting in and belonging but it's um, a good distinction yeah that that belonging is essentially not having to compromise who you authentically really are to be accepted Right. I mean, if, you, if you're not willing not to be liked, then you can never truly be loved. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, what you said rings true with me is that at that time, that was a survival technique that I needed to use in order to exist. And that led to essentially me devoting a lot of my life to helping foster community and belonging right so yeah. i think we all have a choice to make and you know whoever is listening to this i i don't know specifically what you've gone through and i'm not gonna uh compare and contrast you know i don't think that we should compare and contrast our traumas but everyone has gone through things and it doesn't matter whether or not you understand them or whether or not they make sense ultimately after you go through the necessary grieving period you have a decision to make of are you going to be a victim to this or are you going to be empowered by it? And, you know, in terms of what you said about these strengths that you built, it's once again, you know, your, your kryptonite is also your superpower. Mm. And I think that it's important to have a distinction in a transition period of your life of what brought me here won't get me there. And so these things that brought you to this certain place in your life, they were necessary as a fuel source. You know, when you first fall in love with it, whatever, whatever it is you do, I could take hip hop or I could take poetry, it's pure. Mm. You know, there's nothing else co-opting it. You fall in love, period. And then of course, validation, <laughs> success, Ego, yeah. you yeah. know, money, whatever it is, you know, yeah. it starts to get in there, right? And you can't tell the difference. And you know, I would say that I used a lot that was co-opted in terms of a fuel source to get to a certain place in my life. But then I realized that fuel source was unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's when I kind of shifted very specifically and consciously how I was going to move forward as an artist, as a writer and performer, and ultimately as a man. Um, and, you know, this is a bit of a departure, but I talk about this in the book too. There was this time where I was, uh, I was going through a pretty bad breakup and I, I literally was like, I'm going to write a breakup poem. And I, I went back home and I'm like sitting there, I'm about to write my breakup poem. And then I was like, you know, let me just 
look through all of my old breakup poems first. <laughs> and there was nine of them, <laughs> which I'm embarrassed to admit. <laughs> Not nine different relationships. I want to make that clear. Yeah, fair enough. Some of them were doubled up. <laughs> Thanks for that distinction. Yeah. But there were nine poems, which is almost 30 minutes of material, dude. So I sit there. I read all of these poems about relationships that hadn't worked out in a row. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, I don't need to write a new breakup poem because all of my old breakup poems are applicable to my current breakup. So instead, I need to figure out why I'm continuing to create the same lesson in a different disguise over and over and over again. And that was when I started to think about the unsustainable fuel source that maybe I used that obsession and that need for validation co-opted with the love to get me to a place where I had my outlier hours and more. And all of that was necessary for me to learn all of these tools of my art, but it wasn't going to get me where I needed to go because now I was actually perpetuating some of those old stories. And so I I really decided at that moment that from then on, I was going to always end in hope. And I was always going to wind up giving that to myself and to my audience and uh, that I wanted people to leave a room or leave the book or leave the audio book feeling ultimately empowered that they have control over what they have control over and they can make their life as good as they want to make it. Mm. Beautiful. Can you give us one more? Uh, yeah, sure. This is, uh, this is called Learn Fear. Learned fear can be overcome when you realize the voice inside your head is not yours. It's an imitation of the voices from before, repeating on a loop inside your quiet core, receiving since your youth, when your choices weren't even yours, perceiving was the proof, but reality has many doors, so why are we still fighting other people's wars? Learned fear can be overcome when you realize the voice inside your head is not yours. It's an imitation of the voices from before, repeating, repeating, repeating on a loop inside your quiet core. And you can't tell the difference because it sounds the same. But trust me when I tell you, most of what you think is from somebody else's brain. They have us trained, shackled by imaginary chains. Imaginary rules for imaginary games, but they don't know the reasons either. So where should we place the blame and who is they anyway when we're all the same? Our parents had parents and their parents had parents. Apparently it hurts to see, so I'll be transparent. The world is so much bigger than your insecurities. They don't speak on your behalf without your soul's authority. The world is so much bigger than your culture or community, and they don't speak on your behalf without your soul's authority, because if it's all a story, then nobody else can tell it for me. Since I'm always transforming, I defy a category. When you do the same thing the same way, it's habit forming, but nothing in this land of woman and man is mandatory. It's all just transitory. Our world's a laboratory experimenting on today can change tomorrow morning. 
And since matter is mostly empty space, we're in a sea of consciousness where the boundaries are erased. So I stared at my reflection until I couldn't see my face. Then I picked myself and put the flowers in an empty vase. If you came for validation, then you're in the wrong place. The only certain satisfaction is becoming what you've chased. And there's no running from the inner voice. So it's important that you choose, but it's more important that you know you have a choice you have a choice are you living someone else's life you have a voice does it haunt you in the dead of night would you fly if you weren't convinced to be afraid of heights and who convinced you anyway they had no fucking right no one can dim your light You shine within so bright that you could blind the sun from sight and scare him back into the night. No one can dim your light. I said it twice because you're greater than the circumstances that surround your perfect life. You're not your nature or your nurture. You're a prototype. And if you hone it right, eventually you'll hack your satellite. At first, it's nothing. Then nothing turns into a whisper. Turn the dial and it gets crisper in your transistor. Wait a while and the whisper turns into a scream. It overwhelms your system and you won't know what it means. But pump the volume up and it can tell you all your dreams. Till pretty soon it's the only voice you'll ever need. Now all you have to do is listen when you want to lead. Your fear disintegrates when you decide to stop and breathe. It's your authentic voice. No matter where you go, it never leaves. And that's God, no matter what religion you believe. I'm starting my own religion. And everyone is welcome. But nobody can join. If you did, you'd miss the point. Mm. And... I want everyone who's listening to also know, since this is an audio format, that you're not reading these. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I would say it's a disservice to say that you've memorized them because it feels like it's something more than memorizing. It's, uh, it's definitely cellular. You know, people will come up to me you know, because I'll do hour-long shows, but just even thinking about the audiobook, man, you know, it's two and a half hours. And, you know, I love the book, Inquire Within, because it has 60 illustrations. And, you know, we work with this amazing guy in London named Musta Shriek, who created this almost Shel Silverstein experience where people get to dive deeper with the images. And I love that. And then I love the audiobook. And there are two very different ways to consume it, because in the audiobook, you certainly get to hear my rhythms and my emotions and the different voices that I use because sometimes I go into characters and yeah. I'm so, so proud of the audiobook. We really took the time to make sure that we did justice to the pieces. Um, but it's two and a half hours, man, and I literally know the whole thing by heart. Like all MCs, they all have the same muscle. You know, Nas, who you mentioned earlier, I think and you mentioned Biggie, you know, you know, if he was still here, rest in peace, you know, think of Nas, right? Nas could take 
all of his rhymes. And if he just cut out the music and he cut out the chorus and he just tied them together, he could go for hours and hours and hours, man. I mean, these people are all certified geniuses. And, you know, they're, they're you know, the poetic prophets of our time. And for whatever, for whatever reason, people don't always recognize them as such. But, you know, th those are the people that I learned from. And, and this is a, a muscle that I learned from doing it, you know. Have the prophets ever been recognized in their time? No, that's such a good point, man. <laughs> um, I'm super grateful to be here with you, but I'm even more grateful to have this book. Thanks, man. Um, just getting it even a short time ago, I feel uh, like really not just connected to it, but it's also helping me kind of just process things in my own life. Um, and it has this side benefit of putting my wife to sleep. <laughs> 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 um, and I'm really... Um, I'm really happy for you too to have, you know, I, I've changed my tune around the material and the spiritual being separate. Hmm. That there are manifestations of the spiritual in the material hmm. when those things are unique and serve a sacred and human purpose. Actually, Charles Eisenstein, I stole that from him. Um, and I feel like this is one of those things. I can hold it in my hand and feel like there's God in it. So. Dude, that means the world to me, man. Thank you for saying that, dude. Yeah. Really, I, I like, I, I appreciate you, man. Yeah. When I, when I started making it, that was certainly the goal, is I wanted to do justice and to be of service to the pieces. And I, of course, acknowledge that I would love it to be a bestseller and I would love to be able to build a foundation of poetry on top of it and all of these things. But the higher purpose was just to put something out that allowed people to mirror back their own humanity. And as I said, I don't want to manipulate my audience. So whatever it is that they need to get from the book, I hope that that's what they get. And I'm just like uh, really grateful and feel really humbled that I can finally give it away. Because I feel that it has a separate life from me now. Mm, it's yeah. not me. You know, I have a, a, a line in the book where I say the art is more important than the artist is. Mm. And I just feel that. And I just want to give this away and allow it to do whatever it's supposed to do. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thank I you, I appreciate you being here with you. And yeah, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be busy. Yeah. All yeah. right. Cool. Lots of love. <laughs> Lots of love to you. Thank you for listening to today's show with InQ. For more information about him and his new book, Inquire Within, head over to InQ.com. That's I-N-Q.com. If you like the show today, please write us a review or send me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. I always love to hear directly from you. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>